Let me uh, say before I begin this morning that there uh, really aren't a lot of words to describe how outstanding and over-the-top polishing pulpit was this past week. And there was a total attendance record there set this, this past week of 5,304 people. So it was an amazing, amazing thing. Uh, people from 46 different states and 14 countries. Australia, Jamaica, there was a whole group there. And um, personally, I am so very, very grateful and thankful to so many that I was given the privilege and the opportunity to go there. I first off want to thank the elders for allowing me to have this time, have that time to be away and to experience that. I want to thank Steve, who not only filled in for me from the pulpit, but also snuck over again and mowed my lawn. I appreciate that very much. You didn't think, did you? Um, I want to thank those people that showed up at the house the night before we left and spent a few minutes with us and brought us all kinds of goodies. And most of all, I want to thank everybody that said a prayer at all for us while we were gone. Not only for our safe travel, but also um, I could not have done those classes without your prayers and the love and support and encouragement that is, that is here back home. So grateful to all of you so very, very much for this. As we get ready to begin our class, or begin our sermon this morning, I'm going to warn you note takers right up front, you better be ready to go, because we're going to have a whole bunch of them. I'm not going to give you the title yet, we'll get that as we get on into the lesson, but I have my reasons. There are many beautiful names in scripture by which our Lord and Savior is known, Redeemer, Wonderful, Counselor, so many. But there are some other names and terms in scripture which are applied to our Lord and Savior that are not so nice. Terms that are filled with anger, bitterness, accusatory terms, which were used and applied to the Lord by those people who refused to accept his authority, they refused to accept his teachings, and they refused to accept his lordship. And they did that because of their own pride and their own jealousy and their own personal preferences and prejudices, their own personal misunderstandings. Some of those names are names and terms which if I had begun the sermon by asking you who in the Bible was referred to by this name, probably Jesus would not have been the first one that you would have thought of. And yet he was called everything from a sinner to a deceiver, to an evildoer, to being insane or out of his mind, and more. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, I'm not turning there yet, I'm not turning for a while, but just want to set the stage here. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 3, the scribes believed that Jesus Christ was guilty of blasphemy. The high priest in Matthew 26, 65 as well as the Jews themselves in John 10 and verse 33, actually accused Jesus Christ openly of blasphemy. Now, even though the term blasphemy itself is never used directly in reference to Jesus, I'm sorry, although the specific term blasphemer itself is never used directly in reference to Jesus, <laughs> They did accuse him of blasphemy. But to even accuse him of that, inferring that Jesus would blaspheme, is, is utterly and completely 
absolutely ridiculous, especially when you know the meaning of the term. When you know the actual meaning of the term blasphemy, to accuse Jesus of that is the most ridiculous thing you can think of. The Greek word translated blasphemy means to rail, revile, or speak contemptuously about God or sacred things. To speak reproachfully of God or sacred things. It means to, to, to rail against God and tell how awful God is. Jesus? They accused Jesus Christ, the Son of God, of doing that very thing. And, you know, what's interesting and ironic about that is actually those who accused him of that who themselves were guilty of it. Don't, don't lose that in this lesson. It's actually those who accused him of blasphemy, of speaking against God, who themselves were guilty of it. For example, Matthew 27, 39 says, and those who passed by blasphemed him. What an irony. Moving on. In Matthew 9, 34, Matthew 12, 24, and Mark 3, 22, the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Get this. They said that the Son of God was acting by the power on the authority of and in cahoots with none other than the devil himself. That's what they're accusing him of. Isn't that incredible? They're accusing him of being in cahoots with the devil. In other words, those deeply religious people who were themselves doing that were falsely and maliciously accusing Jesus of it. Wow. In Matthew 27, verse 63, the chief priests and the Pharisees, some of the most deeply religious people of his day, called Jesus Christ a deceiver. They called him a deceiver, saying to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. The Greek word deceiver, according to Vines, denotes an imposter, and so any kind of deceiver or corrupter. Strong's adds that the word also means misleading or leading into error. That's what deceiver means. They accuse Jesus Christ of false teaching and leading people into error. And remember who was doing it. The very people who themselves were false teachers leading people into error. This is incredible. In Mark 3.21, Jesus' own family, his own mother and brothers, said he's out of his mind. In John 10.20, many of his own people, the Jews, said he has a demon. And he's mad. And what that Greek word there means is to be insane. They accused, catch this, God in the beginning, who had all the wisdom and created everything that we see, and he used godly wisdom, Proverbs 1 through 10. He used this incredible wisdom to create the entire world. This God, who had all that wisdom in the beginning, who came in the flesh, they accused him of insanity. Incredible. In the absolute epitome of blasphemy, hypocrisy, and insanity on their part, the religious elite of Jesus' days, of Jesus' day, catch this, 
They called him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. They called him who was entirely without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Guess what? They called him a sinner, John 9 and verse 24. Called him who never sinned, who was totally pure and without sin, they called him the sinner. Talk about the kettle calling the pot black, right? And they said that he, Jesus, was not from God, John 9, 16, when in fact it was they who were not from God, according to Jesus in John 8, 31 through 47. He told them they were of their father the devil. It is, it is irony, it is insanity, it is ridiculous that these people called him everything they were actually guilty of and that he was not. And then in John 18 and verse 30, the same pure and perfect and innocent son of the living God who never once sinned, not only in his entire earthly life, but he never sinned in his eternal existence ever. You know what he's referred to as in John 18 30? You know what they called him? They called him an evildoer. And the ones who called him that were some of the most prideful, evil, self-centered, hypocritical, religious people in the world in his day. It's amazing. But you know, even that wasn't the end of it. In Matthew 9, 24, it says they ridiculed him. In Matthew 12, 14, and Luke 19, 47, it says they plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matthew 13, 57, and 15, 12, they were offended at him. Matthew 21, 15, when he was doing wonderful things, they were indignant at him. Matthew 27, 12, Mark 15, 3, and Luke 23, 2, and 10, they accused him. They were the ones that were guilty, and they're accusing him. Mark 3, 30, they said he had an unclean spirit. Mark 7, 2, they found fault with him. Luke 16, 11, they were filled with rage at him. Luke 16, 14, they derided him. John 6, 41 and 7, 12, they complained about him. Matthew 27, 29 to 31 and 41, they mocked him. On and on and on and on it goes. It's amazing. The King James Version and the American Standard Version in Matthew 9, 24, Mark 5, 40, and Luke 8, 53 says they laughed him to scorn. John 7, 20, they said he had a demon. John 8, 48, they said that he was a Samaritan and had a demon. And then in John 8, 52, they said that now they knew he had a demon. It wasn't Jesus that was acting demonically. Luke eleven fifty three and 4, they assailed him vehemently, cross-examined him, lay in wait, seeking to catch him in something he said so they could accuse him. John 5, 16 through 18 and 71, they persecuted and sought to kill him. You know, it defies every shred, every iota of common sense and logic, when you really think about it, that this perfectly pure and sinless son of the living God, God in the flesh himself, Emmanuel, God with us, this, this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this, this everlasting father and prince of peace, as he's called in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it defies every shred of logic that he would ever be referred to as a sinner. A blasphemer, an evildoer, crazy, insane, out of his mind. And that they would accuse him and laugh at him and find fault with him and complain, and this is God in the flesh. They publicly declared that he knew he was a sinner. 
They were offended by him, indignant at him, and so much so they sought to kill him. Okay, but why? Why would they do that to him? Think about that. Why, I mean, this didn't all just, oh, I think we'll go out and pick on Jesus today. Why did they do it? We know that Jesus Christ never sinned. We know that. We know that he never sinned or said or did or acted or preached or taught in any way contrary to the will and word of Almighty God. Everything Jesus ever said, everything he ever preached, everything he ever taught was sinlessly, flawlessly, righteously, pure and holy. Wasn't it? Yes, it was. So exactly what is the problem? That was exactly the problem. That was the entire problem right there. That was the whole thing. In fact, Jesus confirmed in John 7 and verse 7 that the reason the world hated him was because he testified of it that its works were evil. We see this especially in John 15. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles. Please open up to the Gospel according to John chapter 15. We see this theme throughout and reported over and over that the exact problem was exactly that, that Jesus never did anything sinful, that he never said anything against the will of God. That was the entire problem with him. We would see it in John 3, 19 through 21. We'd see it especially in John 15, verse 22. Jesus says in John 15, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. That's what wound them up. That's what got them making all these false charges. That's what got them talking about him and saying he was guilty of what they actually were because he came and he said, look, this is what a righteous life looks like. That's, that was their entire problem with him. If we look at John 15 and verse 22, he said, if I had not come and spoken to them, what did he speak to them? spoke to them the very words of God. He confirms that in other places. That's why they hated him. That's why they accused him of being what they actually were. They were so jealous and so envious of the life he lived and the things that he taught that even the pagan Pilate realized the whole reason they delivered him up was because of envy, Matthew 27 and verse 18. Listen, they could not, we've seen in this Sunday morning class for the past months they could not refute the truth that Jesus taught. Yet neither were they willing to repent and accept it. And when, you're, when you can't refute what the Bible says, you want to live differently, but you can't refute what the truth actually says, but you're not willing to accept it and live it, you're only left one choice. You don't have a whole lot of choices. I'm not going to accept it. I see it. I'm not going to accept it. So what do you do? When they couldn't refute the truth he taught and they were not willing to repent and accept it, they resorted to laughing at it. They resorted to mocking. They resorted to ridiculing. They resorted to calling him names. They resorted to false charges. Because once they refused to accept the truth he taught, brethren, don't miss this, that's all they had left. That's all they could do. They had nowhere else to go, nowhere else to turn, no other way to combat it. 
And the very things they so often falsely accused him of, they themselves were actually guilty of. Look right here with me in this text that we're examining in John 15. Look at verses 23 through 25, what he says. He says, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. One of the key truths that we must remember always, according to this text, is this. By their hatred and rejection of him and the truth that he taught, they were actually fulfilling the very scriptures they denied. Do you see that here in that last verse, verse 25? By their hatred and rejection of him and the truth that he taught, they were actually fulfilling the very scriptures they denied. Jesus said, you're doing this, and this is fulfilling the scripture. They hated me without a cause. The very truth they're seeking to reject. They were fulfilling. Not only that, but another vital truth that we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of here is in this same text, Jesus makes a promise to all who would accept his truth and follow it. You know what that promise is? Whatever they did to him, they would do to those who followed him. Look in verses back up to the beginning of this text in verse 18 of John 15, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If we were to read through the Peter's epistles, particularly 1 Peter, we would see that those who follow him are indeed accused of being evildoers. 1 Peter uses that word twice. In 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16, he was called an evildoer. Those who follow him are going to be called evildoers as well. 1 Peter 2.12 and 3.16. Matthew 10.25 similarly underscores by saying this, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which they did, how much more will they call those of his household? You know what God's household is, don't you? God's household is defined in Scripture as his church, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. If you are part of his church, which is the pillar and the support. Think of these big pillars on front of, of some of these big official government buildings. These big pillars may be on front of a library and, and they hold up the roof. God's church is a pillar and support that holds up there for the whole world to see the truth of God, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. And if you're part of that, then you're going to be persecuted as an evildoer because you're part of his household. You know, we see this persecution promise in Scripture. We see it carried out in the story of Stephen in Acts 7, don't we? I mean, there's some persecution for you. Why? What did Stephen do that was so bad? Did Stephen preach the truth? Yes. Was his account factual? Yes. What did Stephen do so wrong? Exactly that. He told them the truth, and they hated him for it. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. Look with me in Acts 13. This promise of persecution, if you stand up for the truth, being called an evildoer or whatever is, is seen throughout the first century church in some of those sermons. 
Acts 13, 42 through 46 says this. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear, watch this, the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. But Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Please notice that they were opposing the things spoken by Paul. What was being spoken by Paul? The word of God. And so we see this promise of persecution carried out. And that brings us to the third vital truth that we need to be aware of and not lose sight of. When people cannot refute and they refuse to accept plain, simple, black and white, book, chapter, and verse teaching of the word of God that we bring, most of the time they are going to resort to ridicule, name-calling, accusation, much of which describes them far better than it does us every time. Because it's all they got left. We see that in Scripture. And as we've been studying in our final beatitude on Wednesday nights, what are we to do when people falsely speak evil of us for Jesus' name's sake? What does he say? Leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, that's the introduction. Really is. Keeping all of that introduction in mind, that brings us to the topic of today's two sermons. Please do not lose sight of everything we've just covered as we continue to talk in the rest of this morning's sermon and tonight's sermon about this topic. The title is, What It Really Means When Other Religious People Call Us a Cult. What it really means when other religious people call us, that is the Church of Christ, a cult. You have, hopefully, all of you have a bulletin. There's an article in there that goes along very well with this morning's lesson. I encourage you to read it. So I want to begin by looking at what the Apostle Paul was accused of being a part of and by whom in the very first century. You know, when people today, it's almost comical. It would be if it wasn't so whatever it is. When people say that today, it's almost like they feel as though, well, here's, uh, you know, here's something new. You know what? Calling the Church of Christ a cult is as old as the first century church. This has been a regular thing since day one. Did you know that? We're going to prove it. Okay? No, the word cult does not occur in the dictionary, but there's one that's real close to it that means the same thing. It is found in the dictionary. Really, does. There is a word, cult does not occur in the scriptures. It does occur in the dictionary. It doesn't occur in the scriptures. But there is a word in the scriptures that means the same thing, essentially. So I want to begin by looking at what the Apostle Paul himself was accused of being a part of and by whom. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Let us begin in verse 1. Again, 
What was the Apostle Paul accused of being a part of and by whom? Acts 24.1. Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain order named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. He had a saying, a poem for that. It was, you know, like a politician. He was greasing the skids, so to speak, you know, that sort of thing. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. The Apostle Paul, remember how many churches he started, what a great servant of God he was. Look what he's called. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ring leader of the sect. Underline, embolden, highlight of the sect of the Nazarenes. You need to know right now and understand that the word sect in that passage is a twin sister to the word cult that we use today. It is a twin sister. They almost exactly mean the same thing. And so, what it really means when other religious people call us as a cult, we should rejoice, as we've talked about, Luke 6, 22, 23, and 26, that other religious people are recognizing and confirming their identity of us in the same way and as the same Lord's Church as they have since its establishment in the first century. In the first century, they were calling it a sect. You see that? This is nothing new. They were calling us a sect then. They accused Paul of being part of a sect. Think about that. You see, the word, just like the word cult today, those most likely to seek to hurl it at and try to pin it on us do not understand its true meaning, nor do they realize it is they who are usually far more guilty of the accusation they make than those of us they make it against. Remember how we spent a lot of time talking about Jesus, now he's accused of being an evildoer, false teacher, and all that? Remember that? First 20 minutes of the lesson, right? When it was indeed the people making the charge that better fit the charges than Jesus did. You remember that? What I want us to see here, as we talk about this today and as we develop this idea, people that throw the word cult out there at us often fit that description, according to the, the dictionary, more than we do. For example, let me prove it. The word sect is the same word from which we get section. Does that make sense to everybody? S-E-C-T. Sect is the word from which we get section. If you look up section in the dictionary, what does section mean? It means a part of. It means a portion. It means a division. It means a denomination. Lights going on? They accuse Paul of being part of a sect. The word sect, again, very similar to today's word cult, as we shall see, Word from which we get section, a part of, a portion, a division, a denomination. The Lord's one New Testament, pre-denominational, undivided church, we're not a section of anything, are we? We're not a section of Judaism. We're not another man-made denomination. We're the original, right? And yet it is the people who have broke off into denominationalism, into divisions, who themselves are part of the sections 
of the religious world, the sects, talk about irony, that often accuse us who are part of the original that wasn't divided, that wasn't sectioned off, that wasn't denominated, that we're the cult or the sect. Been that way since Acts chapter 24. Think about that. And here's the thing. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul answered that charge the way he did. This is, this is awesome. Look how he answered this charge in verses 10 through 16 of Acts 24. Look what he says. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Watch this next sentence. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect. Did you see it? Paul says according to the way which they call a sect. In other words, it isn't true. They call it that, but that's not what it really is. He doesn't say in this text, but this I confess to you that according to this sect, he doesn't, he doesn't confess it's a sect because the church is not a sect. It's not a section. It's not a division. It's not a denomination. It's the one original body of Christ. And so he's not going to allow them to get away with labeling it that way. He says what they call one, but he's not confessing that it is one. Do you see that? But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Brethren, do we as part of the Lord's church, which many people do call a cult or call a sect, for reasons you can read about in the bulletin, are we part of the one group that believes what the Bible says? Or part of a group, certainly, if not the only group, that believes what the Bible says the way it says it? Are we or not? That's what Paul's saying. He said, you know, what they call a sect, this group I'm part of, is a part that takes God fully at his word and believes everything in the scriptures. They call it a sect, but what does Paul call it? He says, it is the way, according to the way. That's what it is. It's the way to heaven. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the Lord. They may call it a sect, but it's not. It's the way. It's the way in believing fully in God. In fact, one dictionary's definition, and tonight we're going to look at several different online dictionaries' definitions of the word cult. One of them contains a list of synonyms for the word cult. One of these dictionary definitions that you look up contains synonyms for the word cult. You know what some of those synonyms, you all know what synonym is, right? It's a, it's a word that's very similar. The synonym for cult, one of the many, once again, is sect, denomination is actually listed as a synonym of cult. Denomination or faction. Because a cult, sect, faction, division, or denomination is a section off the original. Who's the sect? Who's the cult? Think about it. In other words, it is the denominations of the world which divide it off from the one original New Testament church we see in the scriptures which are far more synonymous with the word cult than we are, by definition. Think about that. Just, just, just let that settle in your mind. Understand, have you ever had a child? There's more to the sentence. 
Have you ever had a child, well, maybe three, five, seven, and they used a really bad word that they didn't know what it meant, but they heard somebody else say it, so they let it. Anybody, does that happen? Raise your hand if that's happened. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. And they use this word, and you go, where did you hear that? Do you know what that word means? Well, why didn't you use it? Well, daddy, oops, sorry, daddy. Mommy used it. But they have absolutely no clue what the word means. But they're just throwing it out. You know what? I wish people who were going to throw the word cult out there would look it up in a dictionary before they start tossing it around like a spiritual hand grenade because they got no idea what they're talking about. A cult is a sect. A sect is a section. A section is a division. A division is a denomination. Don't call the original that. Paul didn't let them get away with it. Acts 26, uh, Acts 24, did he? No, he did not. What it really means when other religious people call us a cult is that they have absolutely no idea what the word they're throwing around and accusing us of being literally means. They haven't looked it up. They're just tossing it out there. It means that due to their lack of knowledge, their accusations are hypocritical. You know, if you're part of a section, a division, a denomination, off of the original, a sect, a cult, the way it's defined, if you're part of one of those groups who came off the original, you look back at the original total and you call it what you are, isn't that a little hypocritical? Paul said no. And, and here's the thing. I just let this wash over you. Please notice the hypocrisy in the Apostle Paul's day. The, the, the hypocrisy, do you know that in Scripture, okay, back up. I just, I'm sorry, I'm not even going to look the clock on the wall, man, too much fun. Did you know? who it was that's accusing Paul, his representatives, the scribes, and Pharisees, right? Okay. Did you know that in Scripture, in Scripture, in the eternal word of God, that the scribes and Pharisees are actually labeled as sects themselves? The Bible verifies that this group, they're the ones that are the sect. They're the ones and they're accusing, falsely hurling that accusation at the Apostle Paul that he was part of a sect as a member of the Lord's one undivided New Testament church. It wasn't a division of anything. Talk about having a log in your own eye. Let me show you those verses. In Acts 5.17, it says, Then the high priest arose, or, sorry, then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. The Sadducees, sorry, not the scribes, I said scribes and Pharisees. The Sadducees in the scriptures, Acts 5.17, this was actually a section, a division, a denomination of Judaism. Verified in the scriptures, okay? Acts 5.17. Acts 15.5. But some of the sect of the, the Pharisees were a sect. Scripture says so. But believe rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Acts 26.5. Paul says, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Pharisees were a section. They were a division. They were the synonymous with today's cult in some ways. Whoops. So we see that it is the Sadducees and the Pharisees that they themselves were guilty of being a sect and yet, in Acts 24, they accuse Paul of it. 
It's interesting to note that the Vines Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words defines sect in part as this. Watch this. A division in the formation of a party or sect in contrast to the uniting power of the truth. Brethren, did you see that? Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. We know that, right? You know that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, training, correction, all of those things. We believe that the Bible is absolutely the truth of God that can unite us all and solve all our problems. It's the word of God, right? We all believe that. A sect, as, divide, as, as defined by Vine's Dictionary, is a division in the formation of a party or sect in contrast to the uniting power of the truth. How can anybody call us a sect when we're the ones that believe in the uniting power of the truth? We believe that if we just preach the Bible in its fullness, everybody could be one and unified, right? Absolutely. We're not, we're not going to form some little party that, that blasphemes against the truth. A sect is a division developed and brought to an issue. We're not a sect at all, are we? Paul wouldn't let them get away with calling the Lord's church the way a sect, would he? No. And yet, if you look up again, some of these definitions of the word cult in some of these dictionaries, if they have synonyms, you're going to find sect. In other words, a sect and a cult is the same thing. Also, don't miss the incredibly important fact, as we have seen in those three references, Acts 5, 17, 15, 5, and 26, 5, that I just showed you. Don't miss the fact that, as we see in those three references, did the Apostle Paul know what a sect really was? Absolutely. He said, I lived as part of the strictest sect of our religion. Paul knew exactly what a sect was. He knew exactly who were part of it. And he knew who was not part of a sect and he knew who was not part of one. That's why he answered the way he did in Acts 24 and said, the way which they call a sect, because Paul knew exactly what, what, what Paul knew exactly what one was. Paul had been a part of one. He knew how to identify a sect. He said he used to be, but I ain't now I'm part of the way, the Lord's church. He knew who was not a member of a sect, either when other highly religious but biblically uninformed people who were still members of one themselves venomously referred to the church he was part of as one. Acts 24, 14. This is something, brethren, as we get ready to wind down here, this is something that we need to be acutely aware of today when denominational, that is divisional, that is sectioned out, sects, which is synonymous with cult, when people who are members of those groups hypocritically accuse us as members of the Lord's original, undivided, unsectioned, undenominated New Testament church we see in the scripture of being a cult when the word cult includes denomination, not the original. Actually, almost comical. <laughs> It, it, it would be, I'm sorry, it would almost be comical if it wasn't so spiritually intense for people to call us a cult if they really knew what the word meant. If they really understood what the word meant, they'd throw it around with no clue to its meaning. Especially religious people that are part of a division, sect, section, etc. 
it would almost be funny. Apparently, they need to know both their Bibles and their dictionaries a little bit better. However, we are out of time. I hope you're here tonight as we really get into the meat of this little, this hasn't been the meat, as we really get into the meat of this little two-part sermon mini-series entitled, What It Really Means When Other Religious People Call Us a Cult. We are going to rely on four different dictionaries. They will only further what we have begun this morning. I say this with all the love in the world, but we need to be like the Apostle Paul. When people are going to call us a sect or a section or a division or a cult, we need to understand what that word actually means, and it probably, if they're part of a religious division, denomination, sect, section, etc., the word probably reflects more on them than it does us. Just like a lot of the accusations against Jesus reflected more on those making than on him, because they were false when it came to him. This morning, you've heard about the Lord's one body, his one church, that church that's been there since the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the way that we always are added to that church, it doesn't change. God's word is forever firmly fixed in the heavens, Psalm 119, verse 89. Church is not going to change. If the church changes, it ain't the Lord's church. Church is the same as it was on the day of Pentecost, a little more mature, hopefully. But the same thing that got those folks into the church then, that got them into Christ, that got them covered by the blood, is the same thing that will today. God's word hasn't changed. There's no expiration date on this anywhere. If you've been here this morning and you've heard the gospel, you've heard about Jesus, and you really believe that he is Lord and Savior and that he was resurrected, you need to be willing to confess that. You need to be willing to repent, change your life, and turn to God. And you need to be baptized. Not just for any reason. But for the one reason Scripture gives in Acts 2.38, 22.16, and other places. Not because you're already saved. The Bible doesn't ever do that. But you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So that God can add you to his son's church. Acts 2, verses 37 through 47. If you're here this morning, and you would become a part of that one original, pre-denominational, we're no denominations around, that one original, undivided, unsectioned body, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will baptize you. And if you're somebody here who just needs the prayers of the church, maybe to carry this message you've heard this morning and the rest of it tonight to somebody you know who's actually thrown that accusation in the past and say, hey, can we talk? Can we talk? I need to explain to you some things. I need to talk to you about some things. If you need the prayers of the church, it'll be added to the Lord's church. Please make your way to the front right now. We're going to stand up and sing a song to encourage you. Please join us.